I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the One Woman Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Grace, and this is the podcast where we talk about everything book and author news, any current events in the book world, any updates on my personal life, and of course, discuss our monthly book club pick, which this month is Wayward by Amelia Hart, and today is the final episode of our discussion. I am back. It feels like so long since I recorded last. I feel like so much of my life has happened. I literally don't even know when I recorded last to get the second part of the wayward discussion up. I don't even know when I posted that. I feel like April in general was just like this whirlwind month for me. And I just have a lot, a lot to catch you guys up on with what I've been reading, what's been going on in my life, what's going on for May's podcast and book club. And in general, we just have a lot to get through today, but I am really excited about it. So If you guys aren't aware, we are going to be discussing the second half of Wayward today, so both final parts. Um, Thank you guys for all being so understanding about me wanting to combine the final two episodes. I did it for a lot of reasons, and I'm really curious to see how this goes today, and if it's like way too much information, I feel like I'm trying to cram like way too much in. It's going to feel like that regardless, because I have so much to say before we actually get into the Wayward discussion, but I... 
am curious because I know that we've all kind of tossed around the idea of doing two books in a month, which I'm still definitely open to and was something I was hoping to do for May. But because of my vacation, and I also have a lot of like work travel and a lot of other events going on in May, I figured that wasn't going to be the best time to commit myself to reading two books for the podcast and trying to get all the episodes up and ready because it is a little bit of an undertaking finding the time to record and edit everything and make sure everything goes up without a hitch. I love it. But having two books for May would have just been too much. I think June is going to be a great month to start that. But this is a great test to see if having half the book in one podcast episode works. So we have the second half of Wayward in today's episode. And then for May, we're going to go back to having a quarter of the book per episode. And then for June, my hope is to have two books and still four episodes, but half of the book per episode. If you followed that, great. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I know it's a little confusing, but all you need to focus on for today is that you should have finished Wayward by now, which I'm pretty sure all of you have. And I'm going to be honest, I have got to get back into the Wayward mindset It feels like forever ago since I even finished it. I finished it before I went on my vacation, which ended last or early this week. And I wanted to finish it before that just so I didn't bring a pretty much finished book on the flight and just take up room in my bag and everything. And I'm happy I did that. But I was kind of rereading through my notes this morning about what I wanted to talk about. And I need to get back in the wayward mindset because to be honest, I am completely in the mindset of another book um, at this moment that I am just like obsessed with. And it's I, 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 okay, (laughs) I need to just first, let's talk timeline right now of my life. As many of you know, I talked about it in many podcast episodes for the last few weeks. I went on my vacation from April 17th to April 24th. We went to Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic for a friend's wedding. And a lot of our friends went with us, obviously, to celebrate the wedding. And it was such a wonderful time. Um, It was so relaxing. It was 85 degrees and sunny the whole entire time we were there. We were lounging by the pool. We were going in the ocean. We were tanning. Um, drinking, obviously, lots because it was an all-inclusive resort, which was really fun, Um, eating so much and just having a blast, like laughing the whole entire time. We went on a couple of excursions. We went on a catamaran ride, which was so much fun. We went snorkeling, which was incredible. So beautiful. The water there was so crystal clear blue. I live in Maine and I go to the ocean all the time, but the water is nothing like the water in Punta Cana, obviously. I have never been anywhere tropical before, so I had never obviously like been to an all-inclusive resort. Um, So that was an experience, but then also getting to go somewhere tropical and like seeing the water and getting to go snorkeling and feeling the sun and the warmth. It was amazing. And even though all-inclusives, especially with friends, can be tiring at times because it's a lot of socializing and it's a lot of just like putting a lot of strain on your body from drinking and being in the sun and just going, going, going. Um, I do feel a lot more recharged and rested than when I went. Obviously, I was very stressed about the trip, getting my passport in time, making sure everything was ready to go. I do have a lot of like travel anxiety, I've realized. And it's mostly leading up to making sure everything is ready to go. So that's where I was at. It was so well worth it. It was so much fun. And my boyfriend Noah and I are 
very happy to be home and to get back to a routine. But of course, we're just like in general sad that the trip is over because it's something you look forward to for so, so long and you plan for and you get excited about. And then when it's over, you're like, oh, damn, like, what do I there? Obviously, it's summer coming in Maine. We're very excited. We have a lot of fun plans, but it's still sad when a vacation is over. And I'm genuinely it's Friday. We got back on like late Monday night or pretty much Tuesday morning at like midnight. I am still looking at our packed bags because I just can't. I can't do it. I can't unpack. I'm so bad. I've unpacked like things I need, like my makeup and toiletries and things. But most of the stuff in my luggage is laundry and just full of sand. And we don't have a washer and dryer in our apartment. So I'm like, I know the second I take it out, I'm just going to put it into a laundry basket. We're gonna have to go do laundry. So I'm just waiting until the day comes when we do our laundry. But regardless, so, so happy to be back and to get back into my routine. As far as reading goes while I was away, didn't do too well. Did not do well at all. I brought five books. Um, Here's what I ended up bringing. Let me pull up my Instagram. The Lion's Den, The Jet Setters, Romantic Comedy, Float Plan, and Stone Cold Fox. And the only book I ever picked up while I was there was The Lion's Den, which is by Catherine St. John. And it's really good. Like I'm genuinely intrigued, but the chapters were so, so long, you guys. And all I want when I'm on vacation, I'm realizing, is chapters that are like 10 to 15 pages, like maximum, because then you can like quickly get through one, go hop in the pool, go grab a drink, like whatever. But when the chapters were like 40 pages, I'm like, I don't want to start this right now because like all our friends were there and we're chatting and we're we're doing stuff. It wasn't the best location to read. And I should have known that, but that's okay. Um, I do plan on finishing The Lion's Den at some point, but it has just like moved back down my TBR until I'm like at the beach or something. I, I know I just like it's I just said you probably shouldn't read this book at the beach, but I'll get through it. But I, I'm not like itching to pick it back up right now. That's just where I'm at. And the other ones I'm pretty much going to put back on my shelf, except for I'm currently reading Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfield, which I'll get into very shortly. I think I've discussed a few of my other reads with you that I've read this month. So I've read five books this month. We did talk about The Grace here. I'm and then I read The Summer I Turned Pretty, which I also think I discussed with you guys because I was on the SSR podcast, the Shit She Read podcast. If you don't follow Allie from the SSR podcast on Instagram or listen to her podcast, you absolutely should. She is so cool. The whole premise for this podcast is we go back and you read a book that you've either read from your childhood or like teen years or even one that you haven't read. And you talk about it now as an adult and like what that book means to you. So I didn't read The Summer I Turned Pretty when I was in high school. But the biggest theme that I talked about was like, oh my god, I should have read this book in high school. I absolutely would have loved it. And I didn't finish the Amazon series last year, I got to like episode five. And so now I know season two is coming out soon. And I literally need to finish the series before that comes out. It actually might be something I do today during work, (laughs) to be completely honest, because it's just it's so good. And just Jenny Han like captures this New England summer like perfectly. And the series did it, but the book like really did it too. Like it makes you feel some type of way. And if you've read the book or you've watched the series, you know exactly what I mean. It was really, really good. Then I read The Soulmate by Sally Hepworth. And I don't think I've talked about that in the podcast yet. And it wasn't my favorite. And I'm realizing I'm realizing I'm just not a Sally Hepworth fan. And now that I'm saying that, I wonder if I did talk about it on the podcast. 
Guys, I'm so sorry if I have, but I am going to give a brief, brief synopsis just in case I haven't. But I also read The Mother-in-Law by Sally Hepworth a couple of years back, I think in 2021. And I remember really not liking it either. But this cover for The Soulmate really drew me in. I It was a book of the month pick. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to give her another shot. Maybe I just wasn't in like the right mood when I read The Mother-in-Law. Like, let me try it. This was a really, really fell flat for me in terms of a thriller and in terms of a book in general. I gave it a 2.5. I said I was somewhere between a 2.5 and a 3. But now having like read books that I really enjoy since then, it's definitely a 2.5. Would not recommend. Um, I said it was somewhat enjoyable to read. It was fast paced and easy, but it was one of the most boring thrillers I've ever read. Sorry to say it. Um, it may just be me personally, but I hate the con artist money laundering, like thug murder for hire type of thrillers. They're to me just like really boring and not exciting. And the twist in this book mostly came from those types of plot lines. And the twist at the end was absolutely not worth the wait. Um, I kept waiting for literally anything to happen. And the main twists all happened right at the beginning of the book. And it made the middle lag so much like nothing was going on. And then one thing that really kind of made me annoyed, um, as someone who has numerous loved ones who struggle with mental illness, and I struggle with it myself, I really didn't like how mental illness was portrayed in this book. And how there's a character named Pippa in this book, and her loved ones were almost afraid of her husband Gabe's personality because of his mental illness. And they were kind of afraid of him because of it. And it just to me seemed like Sally Hepworth didn't do enough research about ADHD and bipolar disorder before writing the book. Um, And it's really rubbed me the wrong way. But that's not why I didn't like the book in general. I just I didn't like that aspect of it. And I just in general, like don't see the appeal of this book. I really liked the setting. I loved it being like on the cliffs of Australia, really pretty. The plot did have a lot of potential, especially from like a little synopsis that I had read. Um, And I I did enjoy the multiple points of view and timelines, and I do think it added to the story, but it just wasn't enough for me to like the book. It's a pretty scathing, it's a a pretty scathing review. I'm sorry, but um, yeah, was not for me. You can definitely skip The Soulmate, in my opinion. The next book I finished was Wayward, and I'll get into my final review of that a little later in the episode, but I mainly want to talk about the book that I finished yesterday, and that is Happy Place by Emily Henry. And I think about this book and I literally get the warm and fuzzies like all over my body. Oh my God, you guys, this book was genuinely the perfect romance. I have not read a book that I loved this much in a really, really long time. I often talk about it on this podcast when a book just gives you that five-star feeling, you just know. I knew right away that this book was going to give me that five-star feeling. And I haven't felt this way about an Emily Henry book since I read Beach Read. Um, When I read Beach Read in 2021, it was actually before I started my bookstagram. I picked it up at Bull Moose like on a whim because it sounded really good. Emily Henry hadn't really exploded at that point, in my opinion. Like maybe she had, but I wasn't on bookstagram. Like I didn't really know who she was or anything. And I'm pretty sure it was before her like big boom almost. And I read Beach Read and I was like, oh my God, this is like, I, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It like sparks something in me, both Beach Read and Happy Place did. It like sparks something in me that made me feel creative and just happy and like just joyful. Like there's no other word to describe it. Like it makes me feel so good and it makes me want to write. And I'll get into a little bit more about the review of Happy Place, but like 
when I read Beach Read, it inspired me to like want to write a book. Again, like I never really talked about this, but in like middle school and high school, I wrote creatively all of the time. Like I had multiple book ideas going on in my head, like all at once. I was writing hundreds of pages of creative work all throughout, especially middle school and then into early high school. I was writing all the time and I was writing ideas for books and I was starting books and I was like writing um, little like scenes in books. So I've always loved to, to creatively write in writing a book just like Beach Read or Happy Place or like any romance is something that I've always wanted. It's something that I've just always like just really aspired to do ever since middle school. Um, I've read a lot of those. I think I talked about this before, like 006 books. It was part of the Isbin number <laughs> um, of these books that I used to read in middle school. And like, I want to write a book like that. This, just these sweet romances. And I hadn't read a book as an adult that gave me the same feeling that those books used to give me in middle school until I read Beach Read. And I was like, oh my God, this is like giving me the same feelings of joy that I used to feel when I read those books in middle school. Emily Henry is now one of my favorite authors and I need to start writing again. And I've had this idea for a book for like a really, really long time, just scenes from this book that I've been wanting to write. And I wholeheartedly like started writing it not wholeheartedly, I really can't even say that, but I wrote a decent chunk of it like last summer. And then when I finished Happy Place yesterday, I was like, gave me that same feeling that Beach Read had given me when I read it. And I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm just like word vomiting here. But I opened back up the Word document on Google Docs and I started writing again last night. And I'm just like so excited about writing again. And it makes, it's like, appealing to that younger version of yourself like what would you want her to be doing right now like what would she want you to be doing right now as an adult and it makes me so happy to like pick up writing again no matter where it goes like of course I would love to write and publish a book one day like that's an ultimate goal of mine like I can't even tell you I have this like very <laughs> like really getting deep now I have this like very um good feeling that I know I'm going to publish a book one day but it's a lot of work, obviously, but writing, just writing in general gives me a really good, amazing feeling, like very optimistic, very positive, very just like good. So anyway, if a book makes you feel that way, like Happy Place did for me, like it, amazing. Like I hope you all get to read a book in the very near future that gives you this sort of feeling that I had from reading Happy Place by Emily Henry. And if you're not an Emily Henry fan or if you've never read an Emily Henry book, now is the time. Happy Place catapulted itself to the top of my Emily Henry author ranking. Um, I haven't read some of her backlist like a million Junes, but I have read Beach Read, Book Lovers, People We Meet on Vacation, and Happy Place. Happy Place is number one. Clearly, Beach Read is number two. I never thought anything would top Beach Read, but Happy Place did. Book Lovers is number three, and People We Meet on Vacation is last. It wasn't my favorite, um, but I still really enjoyed it. Um, so basically, I'll read a little bit of the Goodreads synopsis to you about Happy Place if you haven't heard about it yet. It says, Harriet and Wynne have been the perfect couple since they met in college. They go together like salt and pepper, honey and tea, lobster and rolls, except now for reasons they're not discussing, they don't. 
They broke up six months ago and still haven't told their best friends, which is how they find themselves sharing the largest bedroom at the main cottage that has been their friend group's yearly getaway for the last decade. Their annual respite from the world, where for one vibrant blue week they leave behind their daily lives, have copious amounts of cheese, wine, and seafood, and soak up the salty coastal air with the people who understand them most. Only this year, Harriet and Wynn are lying through their teeth while trying not to notice how desperately they still want each other. That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to get into like two too much. That's the basic synopsis. It is amazing. Um, I said in my review, the best Emily Henry book yet. She's truly outdone herself. Wynn is the man of book boyfriend dreams and him and Harriet's love, chemistry and passion truly jump off the page. Side note, before I get into that, I have like two huge celebrity crushes or I have a lot of them, but Miles Teller is my all-time favorite celebrity crush. Like if I have to like, if I'm picturing a book boyfriend in a book, if they say he has dark hair, it's Miles Teller. If they say he has blonde hair, it gets a little bit dicey because Miles Teller is just like my ultimate, but Wynn in this book had light hair. And then I remember Dacre Montgomery. And before I even like learned who Wynn was, I was like, okay, I'm going to picture him as Dacre Montgomery in my head from Stranger Things, if you don't know. And then she started describing him as like has having like James Dean like bedroom sexy eyes and i was like oh that's like literally Dagger Montgomery and then like it just really confirmed it for me as the book went on so if you haven't read it yet and you picture Dacre Montgomery as Win and i think you'll also really enjoy it like i did <laughs> um back to my review i said i couldn't get enough of their fake dating tension all while going back in time to when they first met up through their whole relationship i was rooting for them the entire time yet their actions all felt reasonable and very adult the friendships and side characters in this book are to die for each one of the characters is unique and complex and has their own character arc throughout the story of course, I loved the setting of Maine's Coast, and not just because I live here, it was the perfect setting to fall in love with. This one will, will not be leaving my mind for a very long time. I immediately want to start it all over again and read all about Wynne and Harriet right from the beginning. So I, I think this is going to be everywhere. And if it's not on your TBR yet, like put it right to the top. It is amazing. You are going to love it. That's really all I have to say. And it inspired me to write again, which is really, really cool. So thank you, Emily Henry. You are like my aspiration. Like she is the best. And that's what I've been reading so far this month. So a really good reading month for me. I'm out of my slump. Oh, I'm actually reading romantic comedy by Curtis Sittenfield right now, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's pretty much like an exact replica. It's about a woman who works on as a writer on a show identical to SNL, Saturday Night Live. And I just read chapter one, which mind you is 128 pages. She does split it up by days within the chapter, but damn, that's a long chapter. And the whole first chapter was about her working on SNL and like just like pitching comedy sketches and doing table reads and just like what a week at SNL would be like. I'm a huge SNL fan and I have been. I've been watching it with my dad since I was really young. And so it was really, really fun to read for me. And it is a romance, though so far I'm not totally buying the romance of it all. Um, it doesn't give me the same chemistry as like Happy Place did right off the bat, obviously. But I think we're just getting to the part where a main character and a side character here might be getting together. And I'm going to read some more of that today. So I'm excited about it. Um, that was one of my book of the month choices last month, if you or yeah, for April, if you had a, had missed that at all. And I do have. A Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. 
Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. A very exciting opportunity coming up next week, which I'm really excited to talk about on the podcast. Um, and I'm reading romantic comedy and a few other books in preparation for that. So so super excited. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have a, an idea of what's going on next week based on the timing and how I always just like tease things. But regardless, really excited to talk about that and tell you more. And before we get into Wayward, I did want to talk about our May book club pick, which we picked this week. So sorry for like, dropping the ball a little bit on the podcast for the past couple of weeks. Um, My life was just crazy, clearly with the vacation. But All of you seemed okay with everything. Thank you for understanding. This is all just for fun, obviously. But I did want to talk about the choices that I did pick and the one that we ended up going with, which when I put it as one of the options, I just knew was going to be picked. And I am beyond excited about it, clearly. All right. So for our first choice, these are no longer choices, you guys. This has already been chosen. But I did want to tell you guys what choices I did choose free wall to pick from. I picked Stone Cold Fox by Rachel Collar Croft. And that is a thriller. Then I picked Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune, which is a romance out May 2nd. I picked 123 by Lori Frankel, which is a contemporary fiction. And I picked Beyond That the Sea by Laura Spence Ash, and that is a historical fiction. And here are the final rundowns of how you guys voted. So 9% of you voted for 123. 21% of you voted for Stone Cold Fox, 25% of you voted for Beyond That the Sea, and 45% of you voted for Meet Me at the Lake, which does not surprise me at all. I am so freaking excited to read Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune. If you don't know, Every Summer After was like one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books of last summer. I read it in like a day 
gave me the same exact feeling that an Emily Henry book does, made me want to write, made me want to read more romance, just gave me that oof, this ooey gooey, amazing feeling inside. And I'm really, really hoping that Meet Me at the Lake does the same. So here's the reading schedule. Again, this is out May 2nd. So this is going up on Saturday, April 29th, as you're listening to this. But The book for May does not come out until May 2nd. So you can pre-order it. You can order it on Amazon and make sure it comes in time. But make sure you get your copy if you are going to be reading along for the podcast. And here is how it's all going to break down as far as schedule goes. So episode one is going to be up on Monday, May 8th. So that gives you a few days to read the first chunk. I have not, since I don't have the physical book with me right now, I don't know how it's all going to break down as far as like page numbers and like what you have to read up to. As soon as I get my hands on the physical book, I'll make sure to put the actual chunks you should be reading for each episode up. And probably for that first episode, it will be a little bit lighter than the following three episodes, just because I want you guys to all be able to read it in enough time, basically. Um, Episode two will be up Monday, May 15th. Episode three will be up Monday, May 22nd. Episode four will be up Monday, May 29th. So that is also on my Instagram, um, in my archive for, or in my highlight, sorry, for my podcast. Um, And I hope that you guys all really are excited about Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune. I can't wait. Um, Let me give you guys a little bit of the synopsis, just in case you're on the fence. Let's read it all together, because I've kind of been in the dark about it myself. All right, here we go. Fern Brookbanks has wasted far too much of her adult life thinking about Will Baxter. She spent just 24 hours in her early 20s with the aggravatingly attractive, idealistic artist, a chance encounter that spiraled into a day-long adventure in Toronto. Sounds just like Before Sunrise, if you guys love that trilogy as much as I do. It's giving me before the Before Trilogy vibes, so I love that already. The timing was wrong, but their connection was undeniable. They shared every secret, every dream, and made a pact to meet one year later. Fern showed up, Will didn't. At 32, Fern's life doesn't look at all how she once imagined it would. Instead of living in the city, Fern's back home running her mother's Muskoka, Muskoka, it's in Canada, Lakeside Resort, something she vowed never to do. The place is in disarray, her ex-boyfriend's the manager, and Fern doesn't know where to begin. She needs a plan, a lifeline. To her surprise, it comes in the form of Will, who arrives nine years too late with a suitcase in tow and an offer to help on his lips. Will may be the only person who understands what Fern's going through, but how could she possibly trust this expensive suit-wearing mirage who seems nothing like the young man she met all those years ago? That's again where I'm going to stop. I do not want to give anything else away. Sounds amazing. We have, of course, another lakeside setting, just like every summer after. And I've gotten a few questions about if Meet Me at the Lake is a sequel to Every Summer After, and it is not. It's a standalone book. However, if you're looking for something to read before you read Meet Me at the Lake, if you have like a little a little lull in your reading schedule right now, read Every Summer After. It's so, so good or save it for the actual summer because it's amazing. But I am so excited to read Meet Me at the Lake. Be sure to be following me on Instagram at Grace's Reading Nook because I will give you guys all some more deets about podcast schedule and when everything is going to go up and what, you know, chunk you should be reading first for next week's episode. Um, We are going to have like a little break, a lull just to make sure everyone can get the book in time, all of that. But I think you guys are all more than okay with that. So thank you for understanding. And at 30 minutes of recording, I know I'm going to edit it down a little bit. We are ready to get into the final part of Wayward by Amelia Hart. So let's start with part three, which was chapter 25 through chapter 37. So I got to get right back into the zone. I'm sorry if it takes me a little while, but we're going to get into it. Okay, here we go. 
chapter 25 is from Ulfa's point of view. And it says in this, I said, not it said, (laughs) these are all notes that I physically wrote. Um, In this chapter, we hear from Ulfa about her mother's death and how that kind of affected her. We hear about how she took the crow in the basket and set it free one night in the trees. And we're actually not sure why she did that. But basically, after that, she fell into this sickness. And then after that, she instructed Ulfa and her to never see the outside world again, even though Ulfa says that she knew that going outside in nature would really help heal her mother. Um, But her mother forbade her from doing that. And they stayed inside, even when they didn't have enough to eat. And her mom basically got sicker and sicker until she died. So in my opinion, at this point, I was like, does the crow have something to do with, like, having their powers? Like by her releasing the crow, was that like releasing her powers in some way? Um, Then we have William Metcalf on the stand, which remember is Grace Metcalf's father. And before that, we hear a little bit about from Ulta about how it seems as though she was in love with Grace. And throughout the end of the book, I just got these vibes that Ulta was in, it wasn't reciprocated, but that Ulta was in love with Grace. Um, She said that when they were little girls, they used to talk about marriage or, you know, how Grace more so used to talk about marriage. And she would always talk about a man and Ulta just stayed silent. So again, I do think that, that she was in love with Grace. When Millie Metcalf takes the stand and he basically says that Ulta is a witch and he's accusing her of witchcraft and killing his son-in-law. He is yelling on the stand and he's literally just going crazy. And all of this kind of occurred to me. I don't, I had this theory and I know that it's not going to really make as much sense now because we're finished with the book. But when he was yelling on the stand and like accusing her so much of witchcraft and just going crazy, what if William Metcalf is Ulta's father? And I don't think that's ever really addressed again, but it almost just, and we just, I don't think up until the end, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're listening and you know that I'm wrong. Do we ever learn officially who Ulta's father is? Because I might be right. Like what if Ulta's mother slept with William Metcalf. Like we don't know for a fact who her father is. Um, That's just something I I wrote down. But at the very end of the chapter, he says, damn you, I hope you rot in hell like your whore of a mother. And, And at that point, he hadn't really called her a whore, just a witch. So I'm wondering, like, he's calling her mother a whore like that No one has ever called Alta's mother a whore, like just a witch. So I don't really understand where that's coming from. And I'm wondering if like he's blaming her her mom for being a whore and like maybe luring him into sleeping with him, which obviously doesn't make sense. But that's just something I, I kind of thought about. Chapter 26, we're back to Violet. And unfortunately, we were right about our prediction of Frederick abusing Violet. He rapes her on their walk while Violet is incredibly drunk from him forcing her to drink brandy. The whole thing is like obviously incredibly sad. And she spends the rest of the day in bed. And after he raped her and on the walk back, she thought the pendant of her mother was broken, but actually realized it's a locket with a small key inside. And then I said, I wonder what the key is to, but Clearly, I think we know it's going to be to the bureau um, that is in Kate's sort of POV. At breakfast the next morning, her father tells her that Frederick left to go back to London, thankfully. And the bite on her cheek, I do think, was from the insects trying to warn her about Frederick and what he was about to do, or a metaphor in general for the pain she was about to endure. All in all, just an incredibly heartbreaking chapter. In chapter 27, we learn that Kate only has 200 pounds in her bank account left, so she realizes she's got to make some moves. So she takes Violet's old gardening book out to the garden and starts foraging for vegetables, which there are many of. Then, almost like witchcraft, insects start swarming around her and she feels a deep feeling in her chest. They're especially attracted to her stomach, which is really sweet, you guys. 
size. And it's probably because, you know, they realize that the, the girl in her stomach is related to Violet and all of these wayward women. Later, Kate goes to the records office to try to get some more information about the wayward lineage. She learns about Elizabeth's death and how the cause was shock and blood, but it doesn't necessarily say childbirth, which I don't think it was since we know there was already a baby around. She learns about another wayward woman named Eleanor who was given a pauper's funeral, meaning no one could really pay. And could that be the grave at the cottage? Then she learns Altha was tried for witchcraft, but there's no record on if she was hung or not. She feels empowered by all of these stories of generations of women and decides to shed her old image and embrace who she feels she is in her heart. Then she goes to Emily's bookstore and asks for an assistant position. In chapter 28, we finally found out that Altha was found not guilty, which is amazing news because, of course, we love her. However, I do think she played a role in John's death. And obviously, guys, we know we finished the book at this point, but I'm just reading my notes as they are. Um, At chapter 28, I still believe that she had a role in John's death. And I do think it's because she was in love with Grace and either she wanted her for herself, which I now realize is not true, or more likely which I realize now is true, that John was abusing Grace in some way and she killed him to help Grace. William Metcalf held his head in his hands when the not guilty verdict was read, but Ulta said she looked right at Grace and said that her father didn't see the expression on Grace's face. And then what was the expression? Was it horror? Was it shock, relief, sadness, happiness? And I said, I need to know how Grace looked. In chapter 29, Violet is in a very deep depression following the assault from Frederick. She decided she doesn't want to live anymore because she feels like she wants to crawl out of her skin and that Frederick has like ruined her as a person. It's truly horrific and just so sad. And so she's about to jump out her window when Graham finds her. The next morning, she throws up her breakfast. And that's when we start to realize that she is probably pregnant. And so at this point, I had a lot of questions. Um, Does Kate end up having a cousin? Does Violet end up raising her baby at Wayward? Does she even have it? All these questions here. Chapter 30, um, I just, with Kate, I really just enjoyed this chapter. I really love seeing Kate embrace her life at Wayward. She's working at the bookstore with Emily and has started to become friends with her. One night they're having a fire at the cottage and Emily mentions that she would have had a baby around Kate's age, but it was born stillborn. Then at this point, I wondered if Emily could somehow be a wayward too. But if not, I think she just feels this kinship with Kate because her daughter would have been her age. Then at the very end of the chapter, um, she received a package from Orton Hall. What could be inside? Chapter 31, Altha gets to go back to Wayward Cottage. She sees a juror in the street and he tells her he didn't speak up previously for a healer who had helped his wife in childbirth and then she had been hung because he didn't speak up. So he gives her some gold coins and, you know, is kind of like, okay, I'm doing good for the life that I caused to end by not speaking up in the past. Thank goodness for him. When she gets back to Wayward, it's completely ransacked, which is clearly from John Milburn's supporters, but she's at least happy to be home and begins to write furiously everything that happened to her so she doesn't forget. There's a quote about time on page 203 I want to read because I think it may have bigger meaning about the timelines and dimensions of this book later. So I'm going to go ahead and read that right now. I am trying to think of where the beginning is. Who decides where things begin and end? I do not know if time moves in a straight line or a circle. Here, the years do not pass so much as loop back on themselves. Winter becomes spring, becomes summer, becomes autumn, becomes winter again. Sometimes I think that all of time is happening at once. So you could say that this story begins now, as I sit down to write it. Or you could say that it began when the first wayward woman was born, so many moons ago. Or you could say it began a 12-month ago today. 
Last winter was a cold one stretching its fingers well into spring. On this particular night in 1618, there was a storm. And so when I heard the pounding, I thought it was only the wind at the door. But the goat whom I keep near me in the winter months looked up with eyes of liquid fear. And then it goes on to be grace. But I just found it interesting how she's like time. It's almost like I have this like weird and I know it doesn't end up being true as we all know, but I had this like weird feeling that they were all being sort of like reincarnated together. And like all these women were like coming back and like there isn't really as we finish the book, we know there isn't really a true theme of reincarnation that happens. But the way that she says like time has no beginning and end almost makes me think that it's like an undercurrent in a way. Um, at the very end, she says, um, Grace came to her door in the middle of the storm in the night. So we're going to get to hear more from Grace about what happened at the trial. Chapter 32, we learn that Violet is pregnant with Frederick's child. Her father is so furious, which is so annoying for many reasons. It's clear he wanted her to be with Frederick all along. Men are just so infuriating and ignorant in this book. Just, it just so clearly shows that. Um, he sends her away and tells everyone else she's going to an insane asylum, which is awesome. Sucks so bad. But really, he takes her to Wayward Cottage. He says that Frederick will ask for her hand in marriage when he returns and that they will be married. She has no say in it at all. She says she'll refuse. So before leaving, he tells her the cottage belonged to her mother. So how did Altha carry on the wayward women? Who did she have a child with? And then there's a large gap between Altha's and Violet's timelines. What about all of those generations? Violet immediately goes onto the timeline with Kate, but what about all of those missing generations? We're missing so many years here. Chapter 33, we go back to Kate and inside the box from Orton Hall are books, most likely Violet's and maybe some of Graham's. Included is the Grimm's fairy tale book, which we know Violet hit her suicide note in. Reading that note is where Kate puts everything together. Frederick's last name was Eggers. He is the Viscount that she met at the hall. That the infestation had been happening for decades, but most of all, she feels empowered to live an independent life just like Violet had, despite what these terrible men had done to them. I love Kate's life at Wayward being so peaceful and cooking and gardening, but unfortunately, I'm sure it's going to get very hectic, I said, which is true. Um, And then I wrote, truly, the only good man we've seen so far in this book is Kate's father before his death. Graham really isn't all bad, but at this point, I said... Kate's father was really the only good man we had known. Chapter 34, we learn that Grace is pregnant and she's come to ask Altha for help to get rid of it or to force a miscarriage. And this is, I'm now realizing I'm a little bit mixed up here. This is now we're realizing before Altha was found not guilty. This is kind of like what happened before and leading up to it. So Grace is coming here to help to force a miscarriage. She said that to do this would be a kindness to the baby. So clearly we were right about John being abusive. Also, Altha noticed a mark on Grace's face, which I'm assuming is from abuse. Altha agrees to it, though she doesn't feel good about it, but will she, she will do anything to help her friend. We realize that Grace still harbors resentment towards Altha for her mother's death. In chapter 35, it was a big chapter. Violet starts trying to make the cottage more of a home for herself by cleaning up, all the while dealing with being pregnant so young and in such a horrific and traumatic way. She finds the bureau that Kate has found in her timeline, and the key from her mother's locket opens the drawer. This is where we finally hear directly from Elizabeth, or Lizzie, Violet's mother. We learn that Lizzie had become pregnant with Violet one night in the woods with Rupert, Violet's father. 
Rupert was never in line to be the next Viscount, and he lied and said his parents knew about the baby. He convinced Lizzie to get rid of his parents and brother so that he was next in line. We also hear more about Morg, the crow. She references in this letter to her mother that ever since she got to Orton Hall, Rupert has locked her away, and she feels weak from not being around her. Is that similarly how Jeanette felt when she let the crow go in the field with Ulfa, and why would she do that? We then learn that through Rupert's letters to Lizzie's mother, that Eleanor was her mother, that that is the gravestone in the garden of the cottage, the pauper's funeral one that I just talked about. Rupert writes letters to Eleanor lying about Lizzie's condition and says that the doctor wants to give her a hysterectomy in hopes that will bring her back to sanity. As we know, she horrifically passes. Did Morg also help Alpha kill John Milburn? Is Morg going to help Kate kill Simon? Poor Lizzie and Eleanor died without each other and alone. So just incredibly sad. Chapter 36, Kate talks to her mother on the phone. Her mom transfers her some money to buy a stroller, and they discuss her visit in a couple of weeks to help her with the baby. Kate buys a beautiful stroller, only to realize she used her old email address, which goes straight to her iPhone that Simon has. She put in her new phone number and address, so if he did see it, he will know exactly where she is. Then she decided to go visit Frederick to try to get some answers about the insects. He is so frightened when he sees her and the W necklace that he screams and a nursing home employee takes him away as he mutters that she brought the infestation, just like we thought and Kate realized at that moment that it stopped when Violet died. Then she does something so stupid, and I was genuinely really mad at her for it. In the middle of a massive snowstorm, she goes to investigate Orton Hall. Of course, she crashes her car, and now she's stranded, putting her and the baby in so much danger. So she decides to walk home. Okay, that was the end of chapter 37. That was the up to 75% mark. But now we're just going to go right back into it. Final part, chapter 37 to the end. So for chapter 37, I said I just realized that all those parts are all in first person while the rest are in third person which I found really, really interesting. And it's most likely because we're reading everything from Alta's actual account and the writing she's been doing ever since she was found not guilty. The sentence she said in her last part about being in the dungeon for 10 days was actually the beginning part of this book, which I found really, really cool. Grace takes the miscarriage tincture and after days of waiting and worrying about her, goes back to Ulfa to tell her that it worked. We were right about John abusing her. She had two previous miscarriages and he was so incredibly angry with her. She thought that if this baby died like the others had, he might kill her. So she had to get rid of it without him knowing, but he still found out and hit her badly. Grace sleeps at Alpha's cottage, and Alpha is so comforted by her good friend's presence and so heartbroken for her life. She says to Grace, there might be another way out of this, and I think we all know where this is going. Chapter 38, Violet is putting the pieces of her life together and how her father never loved her mother and instead thought of her as another trophy and prize that he won. He comes to visit and gives her provisions and says that Frederick has agreed to marry her and that he's gotten a week of leave in September to do so. Violet will do anything, obviously, not to marry Frederick. The, mo- the mere idea of him makes her sick and she cannot have his child either. So she decides to make and take the same tincture that worked for Grace. Chapter 39, Kate makes it out of the woods by the help of Morg. I said by the help of the crow, who I'm very much assuming is Morg, which is just so sweet. Um, is it possible the wayward women are reincarnated as Morg, which I no one ever really confirms that, but it's just something I'm thinking about, or at least it's a crow that looks like them over and over and over again, and that's how they continue to help each other. 
Regardless, Kate gets home and visits the doctors as the baby is fine, thankfully. Emily sets her all up and her mother is set to arrive tomorrow. Then she gets a call from Simon, as we all knew was going to happen, but it's just so sad to break the beautiful spell that she's had going on. In chapter 40, Alpha decides to attend the May Day Eve festival in town, even though her and her mother never attended because she said it was anti-Christian. And then Alpha said that everyone in town were Christians and they still went, but Jeanette said they had to be more careful because they were not like the others, whatever that meant. Alpha goes anyway and has a vision of Grace with lots of dark blood between her legs. She realizes it's not really Grace, but something her mother used to tell her about how sight can play tricks on you. She starts walking by the Metcalf Farms and notices all the crows in the trees and remembers that's where Jeanette set her crow free many years ago. She finally gets a chance to ask Grace how she is in passing one day, and while he doesn't hit her face anymore because someone noticed, he's still abusive. Alpha says they can get rid of him, but Grace warns that if she poisons him, everyone will know it was her who did it and to stay away from her. In chapter 41, Violet takes the tincture to have a miscarriage while feeling the strength from her own mother. Violet knew nothing about sex or the female body, and Frederick took all of the joy of being a woman away from her. This was just really, really sad to me and something I've never, I haven't talked about yet in the podcast that like, Violet didn't know like what a period was when it came. She didn't know what sex was. She didn't know like how she got pregnant. She didn't know like it was possible to get pregnant from that. Like no one had ever informed her like what the woman's body does because Frederick like clearly never took the time to do so because he sucks and like is terrible. But or not Frederick, sorry, Rupert. But just the fact like in general that Frederick just like took all of this joy of being a woman and like what a wonderful pregnancy could be and like how great sex can be like all like by doing this horrific act to her is it made me so so sad and like that theme just continues throughout the rest of the book but I said I hope she can get that the feeling of you know, feeling happy to be a woman back. But at this point, she's lost all of that. In chapter 42, Simon shows up at Wayward Cottage for Kate and Kate hides herself in the attic. Then we go back to chapter 43, which is back to Violet's point of view, which I found interesting that we go right back to Violet after Kate when typically we'd go back to Alpha. Then I was wondering if her story was over. Violet had survived the miscarriage and the vision her mother had of her bleeding the cottage came true, but she made it and Frederick no longer takes up any space in her body. Of course, I completely understand why she had to do this. Um, Of course, all for the choice, but it just makes me sad because I feel like she would have been a great mother one day and the fact that Frederick took this first time away from her like this is just so so sad in chapter 44 we're back to kate again with no alpha yet kate hides in the attic while simon lurks around the cottage eventually settling on the sofa she tried to call the police but now she can't with him inside she tries to text emily but she has no service so they won't go through as she looks for a weapon up there she realizes the w's on the bureau are the same as her pendant and she realizes it's a locket with a key inside just like violet had there's also a note presumably presumably from violet that's says, I hope she can help you as she helped me. Then she starts to read Alpha's manuscript. And that's when we go back to Alpha in chapter 45. We finally get an explanation straight from Jeanette about what it means to be a wayward woman. And just so I don't butcher it, I'll read it now. That's on page 278. At the thought of understanding at last the pull I felt inside me, the golden thread that seemed to connect me to the spiders that climbed the walls of our cottage, the moths and damselflies that fluttered in the garden. Why am I getting emotional? (laughs) Oh my gosh. 
To the crows that my mother had raised for as long as I can remember, the gleam of their eyes in the dark chasing away my childhood nightmares. I had nature in my heart, she said, like she did and her mother before her. There was something about us, the wayward women, that bonded us more tightly with the natural world. We can feel it, she said, the same way we feel rage, sorrow, or joy. The animals, the birds, the plants, they let us in, recognizing us as one of their own. That is why roots and leaves yield so easily under our fingers to form tonics that bring comfort and healing. That is why animals welcome our embrace. Why the crows, the ones who carry the sign, watch over us and do our bidding. Why they tu- why their touch brings our abilities into sharpest relief. Our ancestors, the women who walked these paths before us, before there were words for who they were, did not lie in the barren soil of the churchyard encased in rotting wood. Instead, the wayward bones rested in the woods, in the fells, where our flesh-fed plants and flowers, where trees wrapped their roots around our skeletons. We did not need stonemasons to carve our names into rock as proof we had existed. All we needed was to be returned to the wild. The wildness inside gave us our name. It was men who marked us so, in the time when language was but a shoot curling from the earth. Wayward, they called us, when we would not submit, would not bend to their will. But we learned to wear the name with pride, for it has always been a gift, she said, until now. She told me of other women across the land, like those the couple from Clitheroe had spoken of, the devices and the whittles who had died for having such gifts, or for simply being suspected of having them. The wayward women had lived safely in Crowsbeck these last hundred years, and in that time had healed its people. We had brought them into the world and held their hands as they left it. We could use our ability to heal without attracting too much suspicion. The people were grateful for this gift. And then it continues on, but just so, so beautiful. So we learned that they just have this beautiful and intense connection to the natural world. Chapter 46, we're back to Violet. And I said, I take it back. Graham is the second and only other great man in this book besides Kate's father. He goes to see her after overhearing his father give the address, give the address to the doctor. He buried Violet's baby as well as the tincture so she didn't get in trouble. And I absolutely love this bond. And Graham is so good. Chapter 47, Kate reads through Altha's manuscript and learns about the ways of the wayward women and feels really empowered. Just then, the birds start flocking the house, and she's no longer afraid of Simon. She has her own power and the strength of all of the wayward women before her, so she opens the trap door of the attic. Chapter 48, Alpha is busy helping heal people throughout the winter, but grows more and more worried for Grace as she doesn't show up to church near Christmas. It was so sad when Alpha said that she grew sad, thinking of everyone having feasts with laughter for Christmas while she was all alone. Guys, it's so, it made me so sad. She still continues to walk by the Metcalf farm in hopes of seeing Grace milk the cows, but she never comes out. Until one day she does, looking terrible, and she witnesses John abuse her. She sits with the crows. Then Adam Bainridge delivers her a package from Grace with an orange, which was highly sought after, but also a drawing of a pregnant woman. She knows Grace is pregnant again and needs her help more than ever. In chapter 49, Graham backed Violet up and said that she lost the baby naturally. It was clear Rupert didn't believe them, but it didn't matter since the doctor did, and Rupert would never besmirch the family name with such a scandal. Then, after she's recovered and Graham has stayed with her for a week and helped get the cottage looking nice, Rupert comes back and says she'll go to a finishing school for two years. She says no and summons the insects in the form of bees to scare her father. Graham decided to stay with her at the cottage. They weren't disinherited. They decided to leave on their own. But of course, Rupert says that he disinherited them to the public. I absolutely love this relationship and how Graham is no longer afraid of the bees. Chapter 50, 
this chapter made me cry. Like genuinely, I, I got really emotional during this one. The birds, hundreds of them of all different types, pecking at the walls, trying to get in and help Kate. You guys, how beautiful. Um, Simon starts strangling her and she feels her power take over her. The birds break in and start attacking Simon. Insects come in too. And she realizes, I'm getting chills, that the wayward women are all around her and always have been in the form of these creatures. Ugh, so good. Alpha is in the spiders, Violet is in the mayflies, and all of the gen other generations that we haven't heard about too. The birds poke out Simon's left eye and he leaves. Emily then pulls up with the police there and her friend also came to help. But that, it was, how freaking beautiful was it? Like all of these generations of women, like I'm getting emotional again, like coming to help her in the form of these animals, like just guys, unbelievably beautiful. In chapter 51, we learn that Alpha gave the crow the power to startle the cows to kill John as we suspected. We learn that Grace looked relieved in the courtroom. I cried as Adam and Alpha had sex so that Alpha could carry on the wayward name, but the whole time she thought of Grace, who she has always been in love with. This chapter was just so stunning. She had set Grace free. What she did brought justice. She didn't see Grace again after the trial, but she says she'll find comfort imagining her looking at the same blue sky she sees from her window. I'm so, so happy that Alpha had a daughter who she named Grace so she would no longer be alone. So beautiful. In chapter 52, this was really tough. It was a tough end to Violet's story. I thought it was the end, but we ended up getting a little more. But we know that she had a wonderful life as an entomologist. And unfortunately, and just so sad, she realizes that by having her miscarriage, that she that, that was her one and only chance at having a daughter. And she will now never have the opportunity to teach her daughter about nature and insects. Frederick had taken away her choice and her future, and she says for that she would never forgive him. She also had to learn to forgive herself. I forgot to mention that grave in the garden is Violet's baby, not Eleanor, just a side note. Also, Eleanor just died four years prior while her grandchildren were just miles away, which is so sad. We learn that she curses Frederick alone up at Orton Hall and that Graham is the one who will put her through school. It's a sweet ending and we know Violet had a very cool life while Frederick rotted away like he deserved. But really, really sad to me that at that point, Violet just was so sad that Frederick had taken that away from her. Chapter 53, um, Simon is going to trial for assault and I hope he rots just like Frederick, of course. But she doesn't fear him anymore, so she is safe. Kate gives birth to her daughter with her mother by her side in Wayward Cottage and named her Violet Altha. More tears. And then we have the epilogue in August 2018. And I said I was so thrilled that we got to learn more of Violet, um, Violet's life as an adult. She was very sad for much of her life, even though she enjoyed her career, that she had ended the Wayward line. When she saw Kate at Graham's funeral, that all changed when she saw she had somehow that she was somehow a Wayward girl, too. She thought of Kate always after that and how she had visions of Kate in danger. She ultimately, unfortunately, in a way, caused Henry's death, but also she knew she had to leave the cottage to Kate so she could get away from Simon. Absolutely a beautiful, beautiful ending. What a freaking gorgeous, stunning story, you guys. For me, it was a true five out of five, so unlike anything I've ever read, and it was entrancing from beginning to end. And let me pull up my Goodreads synopsis here. I said, what an intricately and beautifully written story. I don't understand the mixed reviews. I don't. I know many of you really loved it like I did, but there are some mixed reviews. This follows three women from three different time periods, Alpha, Violet, and Kate. 
Amelia Hart does an exquisite job of having each story stand on its own, and I was never confused about which timeline I was in. The only confusing part was the mixing of names because of the generations of people who have lived in Crow's Neck, but if anything, for me, it added to the story. I am a huge fan of magical realism, and this had that in spades. I'm also a huge lover of tiny creatures and couldn't get over the beautiful bond between these women and the natural world and creatures around them. Society cast them aside as witches when truly they were the opposite of cruel and instead cared for all of the beings around them. This is a story about finding the strength and power within you to free yourself from anything that is weighing you down or holding you back. For these women, it was primarily these horrific and evil men in their lives who they couldn't escape until they found the power to do so. It truly was a metaphor for what all of us women have inside of all of us, whether we have magical powers or not. I feel so incredibly connected to these women. I don't know how to leave them behind. Violet, Alta, and Kate may be some of my all-time favorite characters, and I never wanted this to end. I didn't, you guys. What a beautiful book to choose for our April Book Club read. Thank you guys all for picking it. It was one that probably would have sat on my shelf for a while if you guys hadn't chosen it. So thank you so much. I'm looking at the book now. What a beautiful story and one I'll definitely want to reread. And I feel like on a reread, you could find so much more like little, so many more like little clues about each woman's story. But the literal ultimate story of women empowerment and, you know, generational strength, really not generational trauma. Unfortunately, these women go through similar things with these terrible men in their lives. But just seeing all of the insects and animals come through at the end to help Kate get away from Simon, and you know that was Violet coming through in her death because she had left the cottage to Kate to get away from Simon. You know she was one of those animals helping her get away from Simon in the end. It was just so incredibly beautiful. So I hope you guys really enjoyed it too. I've seen so many four and five star reviews of this book and have chatted with so many of you um, over Instagram. So thank you guys so much for choosing it. And I, I've had such a pleasure reading it with you all. And that is the end of today's episode, The End of Wayward by Amelia Hart. Be sure to be following me on Instagram at Grace's Reading Nook. And I will be posting updates for when and where you can get your copy of Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune, which is our May book club pick for next month. The next episode will be going live on May 8th. And I hope you guys all enjoyed today's episode as well. Thank you all so much for listening. And I will talk to you all in the next episode. Bye, guys. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.